The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Welcome to Our Wild World. What a treat I have for us today. Good friends and colleagues, John McNutt, who most of us know as Tico, and his wife and partner, Leslie, of the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust, who happen to be right here in my hometown. I couldn't pass up asking them if they'd like to talk about their work. So welcome, Tico and Leslie. How are you today? Oh, thanks, and we're very well, and it's great to be here. It's a little yes, different thanks, here really? in Aspen than Botswana. Indeed. It's a little different. We're enjoying the altitude. We, we don't get much of that in Botswana. <laughs> You'd have to climb to the highest hill and it's still what? A couple meters. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get into talking about some of the incredible work that Botswana, Botswana Predator Conservation Trust does, which I'm going to shorten to BPCT. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, Tico and Leslie a couple of years ago, and they invited me out to their wild dog camp. So... Why don't we start by uh, giving us a little background about yourselves uh, in BPCT and how did a guy from Seattle and a woman from Toronto end up in Mount Botswana? Why don't we start with you, Leslie? Well, thanks, Ellie. It is an unusual place to end up, for sure. Um, I uh, was working and traveling after I finished an undergraduate degree and ended up in Africa for a couple of years. I was quite an avid kayaker at the time got stuck as a whitewater um, guide in the Zambezi for a little while, and um, then went back to Canada after that, it was in the late 80s, and was working for a couple of years with our Department of Environment, and for some reason just had a draw and a passion to come back to Africa, and it felt like I had a need to do that. So Ben uh, went back and was working and living in South Africa, I had a small consulting company working together with um, local communities trying to, interestingly, raise funds from the U.S. to try to, 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 to build local community development. And I ended up meeting Tico in Mound when I was on a consult, small consulting job to go up to Botswana. I, so, I have yeah. to interject here. Botswana is a landlocked country. It is indeed. And you're a kayaker. <laughs> Do you yes, find many places to kayak these days? Well, the Zambezi is still just across the street <laughs> in, in, in our world. It's only couple, five, six-hour drive. That's all. So, a little yeah, closer yeah. in Kasani. <laughs> a little closer, yeah. <laughs> Do you get out there much? I don't. I don't. I really okay. don't. Sadly. <laughs> so focused our energies elsewhere. But, well, uh, that's good. So why don't you tell us a little about you, Tico? How did you end up there? And you founded BPCT, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, Leslie and I founded BPCT together, but I started there in 1989 as a graduate student uh, working on a PhD in in animal behavior from the University of California in Davis. And I, my real intention was to come to Botswana to spend just a year um, really kind of sorting out a research project for my supervisor in the middle of the Okavango because it was an opportunity and he needs, needed somebody to do it. And, and while I was there during that first year, I ended up um, talking to one of my colleagues who was a student finishing in the Delta, and he said, you know, wouldn't it be great to start a wild dog research project, because this is the perfect place to do it. And so I thought, well, let's go have a look at that. And 
And I ended up changing my plans altogether and um, got some help from the Frankfurt Zoological Society, uh, help for threatened wildlife, and ended up doing my PhD research on African wild dogs. And at that time, called it the Botswana Wild Dog Research Project. Leslie joined me, as she said, uh, just a couple years later. And, and eventually, we kind of evolved and grew into uh, a large carnivore research program that we we need to, to sort of expand our understanding of all the large carnivores to really get a sense of uh, detailed understanding of what what the what the factors are that are there that wild dogs in particular are relying on in in Botswana. So we expanded it and renamed it the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust, which is really an important point because wild dogs are an endangered and very critical and rare species. They're coming back. And um, it was wonderful to be able to spend time with at the dog camp. But understanding how they interplay with the other carnivores is pretty critical. And that's a lot of what your wild dog research does. Absolutely, yeah. The research on the ground is about doing that, looking at how they, they themselves and what they need, but also how they interact with and how are influenced by the other large carnivores but also, importantly, people. And that's when I joined TICO, uh, went back and did my graduate work at McGill in, in Montreal in anthropology, and anthropology of development. And so I spent all of my time, my research, looking at the interface between people and wildlife. And the villages that surrounded TICO's um, study area at the time, on the natural science side, I was looking, trying to understand the relationship between people and the attitudes and behaviors of them, them towards the animals that Tigo was studying. And that's how we ended up growing the project into a more holistic conservation organization, which was both the science behind it, but as well as, as the conservation, which is really ultimately about people. You're really one of the few projects that takes this holistic attitude. So much wildlife conservation is really focused on wildlife that people get lost. And as many authors have said, we're making enemies of those of conservation or conservation colonialism because people care about the wildlife and forget about the people. So while we're there and we're heading into that, you've got um, a really fascinating project, Leslie, called um, Coaching for Conservation, which engages school children with animals in a very unique way. Why don't you tell us about that since we're headed in this direction? Sure. Well, as I say, it started when I was doing my, my research and my, for, my, for my dissertation on behavior of people towards wildlife. And I spent a, a lot of time, almost a decade, working with villages and trying to understand how to affect change in their attitudes and their behaviors and finding that I wasn't having a huge amount of success. I mean, we weren't having a great amount of, of, of forward headway, I guess, in getting our conservation messages out. And at, um, at some point, we realized and that it was actually not the right thing. We were sort of trying to re re redo the way conservation had been done forever, which is sit and, and do education with, through knowledge. And it was clear that that wasn't working. So it, I stopped doing that about 10 years ago and, and tried to understand and really evaluate what it was that we were doing wrong or what we could do better. And that had to do with engaging with people in a way that they cared about. And what was really fundamentally, what we came to realize fundamentally, was that people weren't thinking about their tomorrow. They weren't thinking about their future. They weren't because they didn't necessarily know that they were going to have one. And so it's very difficult to talk about conservation to people and say, for example, the fate of an endangered African wild dog if they themselves weren't clear in their own fate. So we, we changed the way that we do things in terms of looking at more of a human-based approach, and it had to do with children, and it had to do with an understanding of one's respect for oneself and their attachment to their future. Because you can't talk about the future unless you've chosen to have one. So we, the, the, the foundation of Coaching for Conservation was, was about talking to kids and engaging with kids in a way that they can understand, and the, the, the mission became to to, to have children understand a respect for self, first of all, in order to choose to have a future, respect for others, and respect for, ultimately, for the environment and the world around them. 
So we did that through this program that we started um, with a sport, sports-based as, as its mechanism. So how does that work? When we talked that morning and breakfast in Mount, mm -hmm. you were saying it, it had something to do with attaching to the spirit of an animal, engaging and embodying the spirit. So rather than hunting it and absorbing it that way as they do in, let's say, Asian or uh, Asian traditional medicine, you have brought about a different kind of connection. Tell us how that works. Um, yes, so we're trying to create a way that children can ha have a relationship with the animal because we understand and feel that, that anybody, you cannot value something until you have a little bit of information about it. It's very difficult to care about something unless you know something about it or have a relationship with it. So the first thing was to try to bring those animals that we're trying to protect onto the sports field. So they became the mentors, they became the heroes, they become the virtual coaches for our children. Give us so, an example. For example. Not literally bring the animals. Yeah. Not literally right. bring the animals, true. So that's an so, important point. We're not literally bringing cheetah or wild no, dog or lion. We're bringing the, the, the spirit of those animals, as you say, onto the soccer field. So the children come and it's a three-part um, program where you meet the animal, you be the animal, and then you help the animal. So you so meet the animal you for real. You meet the animal, not no. for real, but Just you learn about sense. it through pictures and slides and a, and a discussion. So we'll start with, say, cheetah, for example. You, the cheetah, we learn that it's fast, that it's got incredible speed, and the reason is because it's got this agility and its structure and, and bone structure. And so then you take it, and you understand through the work that we've done how it's not only that it runs so quickly, but why it runs so quickly. And that's what makes it successful in the wild because of its speed, balance, and agility. So then we take those behaviors onto the soccer field and we learn skills and drills in acceleration and fast dribbling. So every time you're doing that in the soccer field, you could be the cheetah. You remember what it is to be a cheetah and how come a cheetah runs so fast and you can be that cheetah. And then we also translate that into a life skill about balance and agility and how important it is in one's life as well to live with balance. And following on that, you move to a conservation game where you'll learn what the conservation challenge of that animal is, the most important thing. And in that particular game, we learn about how you yourself can help cheetahs or help any wild animal by protecting your own livestock. So we teach a little bit about animal husbandry and if you to corral your animals or use a herd boy and or um, guarding dogs, you're protecting your livestock. The cheetah or any other predator can't get at them, eat them, and therefore they're protected from being hunted from the hunters. And then we carry on with the, all the other animals from wild dogs. We learn about teamwork and cooperation. From leopards, we learn about territoriality. From lions, we learn about strength and confidence and pride and being a little bit aggressive on the field. And teamwork, perhaps. And absolutely teamwork as well. So, so all, of the, <clears throat> all of the animals and their behaviors are brought into basically coaching about football, soccer, and where kids all love to play soccer. And there's some important things about soccer at the age that we, that we um, um, address the primary school kids, and that is that they're both boys and girls can play and play together. And they don't traditionally do so, mm -hmm. but in coaching for conservation, um, boys and girls uh, are part of uh, the same program and play and compete together at the same time. And there's real important sort of gender issue implications as a result of those things. But then the animal models are basically just there to teach, they're being coached about learning about how to play soccer, but doing so using models of animal behaviors that are the animals that, that are around them, the animals that are part of their natural heritage. Well, it gives them a much better connection. It's a fascinating project. So our listeners can learn more about Botswana Predator Conservation Trust at bpct.org, correct? bpctrust.org bpctrust.org so look that up and we're going to take a short break so stick with us we'll be right back
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with uh, Tico McNutt and Leslie McNutt with the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust. Right before the break, Leslie was telling us about the Coaching for Conservation project, which really brings in a whole different way of looking and combining children, education, environment, and wildlife, and gives them a whole different kind of respect. I would love to see a project like that take place here, so maybe we can talk about that sometime. So um, let's talk a little bit more. You, one of your models in coaching for conservation is wild dogs, which is where Tico began. So let's get into wild dogs just a little bit more. Um, when I was with you, I spent some time at dog camp with Chris and Neil, and they took me out. We got unprecedented views of wild dogs and even got to make a, a kill. But the reason we were out there and I got to tag along was um, working on bioboundaries, scent markings. And uh, your lab is doing some very interesting work with scent markings and bioboundaries have really come up a lot lately. But I'd say it really kind of started with your uh, groundbreaking work. Tell us what bioboundaries are and what that's about and how you're doing it with wild dogs. Right, well, um, we refer to the concept of bioboundary to embody what we would call a biologically relevant boundary. And we distinguish that from uh, boundaries that are, say, land use designations that constitute really a line on a map and have oftentimes very little biological relevance to the to the animals on the wildlife side of, say, a park boundary or a wildlife management area boundary um, that has an edge or an interface uh, with human uh, rural livestock farming and other human enterprise. And so that interface is a very important, um, an important interface and really where conservation needs to focus. Because I'm going to interject because I think it's important here to mention that wildlife is not necessarily fenced. National parks are not necessarily fenced. So even though the person is entering a gate as a tourist or whatever, the wildlife moves in and out of these uh, These permeable boundary areas. areas. They're not following a straight line. Those are not biologically relevant boundaries to them. They're just a line for 
for land use, for example. So political boundaries. Political boundaries sometimes. And, and so we're interested in trying to identify how animals themselves uh, identify boundaries. And, and what I mean by that is, it, for, and we, we're focusing on African wild dogs because they're um, one of the most endangered large carnivores in Africa. And they're a highly territorial species. So they talk to each other, their neighbors, in a way that allows them to avoid a lot of aggressive conflict. Um, and they do so not by vocalizations um, and not by engaging in displays one-on-one um, -on -one or face-to-face -face with neighboring packs of animals, but rather with chemical signals, scent marks. And, and this modality of communication is one that we as humans are particularly bad at. Um, and and that has contributed in part uh, to, the, to a, a severe lack of understanding of how most of the uh, mammals in the world actually talk to each other. Right. And we so could take, we're for trying example, taking your dog for a walk and he's stopping at every female, so to speak, to let everybody know he's exactly here right. and yeah. sometimes mark over somebody else and I've seen exactly. my cats do that. So exactly right. This is how we can rate, relate to this. And Go ahead. The, and their world is all about their chemical, um, old, their olfactory perceptions in the world and we just are pretty bad at that. But it's also a very complex chemistry. And so uh, what we're trying to do, and we've, uh, with the help of the Paul Allen Family Foundation, um, we've set up a, a state-of-the-art gas chromatography mass spectrometry lab in Mound, which is an unusual dusty little village to have this uh, technology available. But it's a unique uh, in the world because it's dedicated to answering this one question about an endangered species. And that is, how do wild dogs talk to each other about their boundaries? And so uh, the, the concept is that we will um, be able to figure out how, what compounds are being used to flag and signal species specificity. Uh, wild dogs, we know they have to be something that's unique to wild dogs because their whole world is surrounded with scent marks from all these other animals they live with. So, we're looking for these chemical signals that will allow us to synthetically put together uh, the chemistry, maybe in a super stimulus sort of way, but it put together the chemistry uh, synthetically that we can uh, put in the hands of uh, farmers and um, uh, park boundary uh, managers uh, um, and people wherever there's this interface where wildlife is on one side where it's considered desirable and where people and livestock are on the other side and carnivores tend not to be considered uh, desirable and, tend, and are not tolerated. And so if we can just provide them with these chemical signals that they're actually looking for, they're predisposed to be looking for, then we can start to mitigate both sides of that interface and actually provide a synthetic biologically relevant boundary. And that's that's what our bio uh, our bioboundary research project is about. Well, it's, it's really fascinating. So when we were there, we were actually picking up scent marks, which, yes, is peed on pieces of sticks and grass and collecting that, not only for the lab, but I also understand part of the wild dog project at dog camp there, which is just on the edge of the Okavango Delta. Great place. Um, fascinating, beautiful scenery, amazing dogs. Is that you were also laying you were picking up scent markings from wild dog packs that you knew existed and creating a bio-boundary to reintroduce or introduce wild dog packs and keep them out from other areas. Tell us a little bit more about that. So you haven't synthesized the chemical components yet, but right now you're using... Right. We know we were using real scent marks with the idea of it's, if the chemistry is in there as we understand it, then we should be able to, even without knowing what the chemistry is, then we should be able to manipulate uh, and manage uh, the free-ranging um, wild dogs that we want to introduce in, into an area by just translocating actual scent marks, even though we don't know what the chemistry is. 
And so we, un we undertook to do that in an area which was, which we uh, in, in the canid specialist group and the wild dog working group had identified as recoverable range in easternmost Botswana in the northern Thule Game Reserve where there hadn't been any wild dogs for over 40 years and yet they were uh, there were areas that had been converted for years from livestock uh, farming in back into into wildlife and they wanted and needed this very important apex predator in that system because they had a very high density of all the impala and, and other prey animals and um, wild and dog food wild dog food and um, and so we felt well this is a perfect opportunity to experiment with the bio boundary but even though we don't know the chemistry let's just let's just pick up some scent marks from known individual wild dogs from a single pack uh, that is in our study area in the Okavango and translocate them and then relay lay them out uh, identifying a new boundary in order to give these subsequently released wild dogs a pack um, some perception that they actually have neighbors and so, so they're released so you, into an unfenced area so you have to are you collecting their scent or are you collecting unknown dog scent so that when they hit this scent bio boundary there's saying, uh-oh, we've got neighbors? Yeah, exactly. It was okay. unknown to them. We, of course, we knew exactly. Every scent mark was cataloged with an individual and a location and a time and what it was and all that stuff. So we had all that information in each scent mark we collected. We, we um, collected hundreds of them and froze them, uh, which was an interesting thing because we don't know whether freezing could, could change the signal, but we uh, figured that was the only way we could collect enough uh, to do this set 60 or 70 kilometers of boundary where we could provide the perception of virtual neighbors for a pack that we then released into this defined area in the northern Thule Game Reserve. So I'm getting this visual. We know how dogs mark their walks. So <laughs> I'm getting this little visual of Tico out there and his field team going up against the bushes and marking the dogs, but you're laying down scent markers. How far apart do these markers have to be, and how often do you have to replace yeah, great, them? Great question. Both of those questions are good questions, and the answer to the first one is um, we actually had uh, some work done by one of my former um, PhD students, Megan Parker, and she actually had some data on existing uh, scent mark frequency in space. And, and we, so we kind of used that and halved it, thought, well, we'll just increase this a little bit. It's a one-off experiment. And um, so that was about a kilometer. We put our scent marks over 70, almost 70 kilometers, about one kilometer apart, staggering them. And so it's a little bit hard to imagine you out there, Craig Jackson and myself, with little fistfuls of wet and smelly sand and putting them down and then saying, okay, We'll put maybe a couple here, and then the next one a kilometer away. And you, you know, really is this? You know, could this really impact free-ranging dogs that want to go? And um, and yet we release these dogs into into the Northern Thule Game Reserve, and um, they were maintained there uh, without without fences, without handling, without having to recapture them, uh, but with some intensive scent marking management over the next three years. This is really fascinating because it leads into a whole new wave of non-invasive um, reintroduction of species, understanding how species talk to each other, protecting wild dogs, of course, and bringing in more wild dogs. Right, but and other territorial species, for example, and this is what oh, your, yeah. your, your reintroduction concept is a really good one because rhinos, for example, are highly territorial animals and they use uh, largely um, chemical communication scent marks to identify they areas. They have that midden, right? They have middens. The, the, and which is a pile <clears throat> of dung. They mark, they come back and continually release their dung in yeah, piles and yeah. everybody knows that this is where it is and it scuffs all over. Yeah. Right, and so people have cottoned on to the fact that these middens and their scat piles are, are important and have um, in reintroducing rhinos into wild areas, for example, in northern Botswana, they have um, tried to collect some of these things in order to 
to um, lay them out and per, and give perception that they have neighbors in places where they don't. And uh, so the bio the bio boundary concept is a- applicable to all territorial species. Uh, wolves. Wolves are the next thing, and certainly. Okay. Uh, what about lions? Everybody's well aware of the impact of of the interface between wolves and livestock. Um, and lions, uh, lions are also highly territorial. Um, they also scent mark a great deal. But unlike uh, African wild dogs, much more like wolves, they do a lot of vocalizing as well. Okay, so you need so to add that in there. But you can add that. We, you know, we've we've been able to record and broadcast vocalizations for years. That's well, that, yeah, easy. that's been going on. You can bring that's, lions into a study group by easy. putting out the calls. Right, and so if. Um, and 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 their their lion calls also are uh, uh, depending on who and where and when are sometimes attractive and sometimes not. And um, so we have a student now that's working with us at BPCT who's just starting an investigation into um, what are the characteristics of these calls that that make uh, some lions repel or move away from a, a broadcast. A lion call, and what are what are the ones that attract them? And because that's hugely, potentially hugely valuable for managing, again, at a biologically relevant interface where you we want to be able to push lions back from a from a, a wildlife area boundary. So we're here with Tico McNutt and Leslie McNutt of the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust, and once again, you can find them online at BPC trust.org and learn more about their projects or simply contact www at wildeyes.org that's w-i-l-d-i-z-e.org follow us on facebook and twitter and uh, give us a call sometime send us an email and we'd love to tell you more about what's going on and yes you certainly can donate to these projects and your help is um, most appreciated because as you can see conservation uh, today is about learning a whole lot more of what, what the wild world is telling us so that we can protect it, reintroduce, and as long as we have the habitat, then we're one step ahead. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with Our Wild World. And before the break, we were talking with Tico McNutt and Leslie McNutt and um, talking about how coaching for conservation brings in children and understanding how wildlife is important to their lives and their social lives and the human life as opposed to just wildlife for wildlife's sake with not thinking about people. And um, the discoveries that we're doing in Tico in his lab in Maun, uh, the gas cr- chronometer. Cr- chromatography. Cr- gas chromatography. Chromatography. Okay, that's a little more than my tongue can handle mm-hmm. right now. And breaking down the information that is carried in scent markings from the white noise, which is food or um, just the things that everybody has. As Tico was saying, the wild world communicates through scent. Vocalization is a part of that, but scent, which is our least uh, adept or adapted uh, sense is a must in wildlife. So we were talking um, about the scent and have you in the lab have you been able to break down any of these key factors and separate out white noise? Have you gotten any closer? Well as you say most of the white noise of course scent marks in wild dogs are there's no specific scent gland say that are that is typical of hyenas and um, and some other species that do pastings, like people are aware that many of the ungulates might have scent glands in, in their, um, somewhere in their uh, facial region. Yeah, and a lot of people on <laughs> safari, you'll have seen dick dick or gazelles go up two sticks and they have scent correct. glands yeah. at the corners of their eyes or at the... Superorbital glands. Yeah, yep. and <clears throat> Paula have them on the back of their legs and those gorgeous little black socks. Right. So but, they're leaving scent all the time. It's right. not necessarily through urination or spraying. But with wild dogs, they are the scent mark is is either in scats or in in um, in urine and and our understanding so far is uh, everything we've learned so far is suggests that the urine scent marks are uh, are the most important. And so um, as you say a lot of there's a lot of white noise because it's a ultimately mostly a waste product um, and everybody's got you know everybody's urinating out there all the lions and the elephants and everybody is is excreting these waste products and so as we do these analyses and um, and identifying compounds when we discover a compound that hasn't been listed or hasn't been described in the urine of any other animal, you say, oh, there's a possibility. So that's a marker. That's a that's a possibility that's a for our flag. marker. Okay. We're looking for those big flags. But what's happened um, for the last couple of years is that we, the more, harder we look, the more we find that most of these chemi- chemicals, these compounds, are found in in every carnivore. And so, just carnivores, or well, we're, we're we've more. There's more that are specific to carnivores than there are the ungulates yeah. and elephants and yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But, uh, but waste products, you know, they'll share hundreds of the same waste products chemically. And so we're, so we're, uh, we've identified dozens and dozens of compounds. Um, so the other thing that's important about understanding scent, and our listeners will have gotten this from talking with Pete Coppolillo and Working Dogs for Conservation and Dr. Sam Wasser and the elephant dung and DNA is that through scent, there's so much that's being communicated. So our wild world is really an aromatic place. So um, part of what's important here is that scent marking is critical to understanding before we lose all of these things. And I was headed to a point there and as usual, talking with amazing people, I forgot my point, so we'll go on. Um, <laughs> Leslie, uh, part of this comes back to working with children and creating that beneficial relationship between people and wildlife, and your coaching for conservation. So where does your work come in and combine and cross over, let's say, the boundary between what you're doing, or is there a boundary between what you're doing with the communities and what Tico is doing in 
wild dogs. So normally these two communities, people and predator, wouldn't want to mix. So how does your work combine with what Tico's doing? Well, that's a good question. Um, certainly our whole mission is to affect change in conservation, but solutions. In, and find solutions and finding ways to actually change behaviors. And what it comes down to is really changing behaviors. So what we're trying to do is create a generation of kids who care. And so we can when to understand the science behind what wild dogs need in terms of habitat and prey density and requirements for a successful and intact wildlife population. That's not good enough because then you need to have the people on board to actually give the space, create the space, want to actually work together with the science to actually create to the conservation at the end of the day is about people. So my work is, is, is connected in every way because we are putting together a, a, a generation of kids who once we can answer the questions in science, they can implement the solutions. So Koji for Conservation specifically is about having a children and changing their relationships and looking at not only their knowledge about wildlife, because it starts with the knowledge base, but knowledge alone doesn't change behaviors and attitudes. We know that. They have to have something more. It has to come from the heart. They have to learn it, and then they have to, to embrace it and understand it and feel they themselves are empowered to actually make a change and embrace those things, as well as have the ability, once they grow up or even in their, in their youth, to actually do things that will not only change their own behaviors, but maybe their families, their peers, their teachers, their parents. This is, this is a critical point here because here in the U.S. we've lost most of our carnivores. We've done a really good job of extirpating them and now we're trying to re reintroduce them, but we still kill them off constantly. Wolves, mountain lions, bobcat, lynx are protected, coyotes, coyotes you name it, killing contests. So in there is a lot of attention and funding being put into African wildlife and protect it. It's very much on the radar. So what you're doing and what you're talking about in engaging children to care about their wildlife has been successful here, but um, you were talking about conservation is about people, and this is one of my favorite all-time taglines because it really is. Wildlife basically needs us to leave it alone and give it space. So we were talking earlier that rarely in conservation conversations is the human population equation put in. So in, in terms of reducing human numbers and creating and allowing space for people. So in your work in coaching for conservation and your work, Tico, in working with the communities, you guys have been operating in Botswana for quite some time now. Have you noticed a difference over the timeline from when you first started this to now, are you seeing a change? Uh, what is the time span of, let's say, some of your long-term students? Mm -hmm. No, good question. And that's that. We do measure that. It's an important aspect of what we do in terms of monitoring and evaluation. We have always said that it, it's important to know not only that you're being. How do are we being successful, and how do we know? And so how so do you measure spend, that? We measure that through various different ways. There's a we do a, a pre and post program survey. So we're asking kids before they start, you get an understanding of where they've come from and what, what their knowledge base is and what their situation is domestically at home. So you start out, we measure knowledge, we measure empathy, we measure self-worth and attitudes. So we're trying to elicit all of those things and understanding not only knowledge, but how they react and how they interact. And then at the end, we do the same. So again, knowledge, empathy, self-worth, and, and attitude toward. And we've also added a whole layer of what we're calling appreciative inquiry, which is really an understanding. It's a bit more qualitative, but actually quite a real way of understanding the change that those kids have gone through. So if, what we're trying to do is, is create value where there previously wasn't value. By and we're talking value that is not necessarily monetarily or commodity-based. Absolutely, okay. absolutely not. And what we have done and what I learned when doing my own graduate research is that financial incentives don't often work to change attitudes and behaviors because they're not necessarily the most important thing to people. So I have the economic argument that 
because you are getting financial reward from wildlife, that you are therefore inherently going to change your behaviors towards it in situations of conflict. That's not really the case most of the time. So there are other incentives that people are more likely to, to that are more likely to change their behaviors. And in those, the real, reality is those incentives are when they care about them. And they actually value them for the, for the fact that they are part of their world and or they, they interact with them. And they can be financial, but they're not exclusively financial. So do the kids that you, the children that you work with, do they get an opportunity to see these animals in the wild and appreciate that wildlife does live separately from us, that there really you know, isn't a human interface with wildlife? That's kind of the whole point. We've got to let wildlife be. Do, do you find that at the youngsters or the, the teenagers or at, along this age group, which ones begin to appreciate seeing it out there in the wild or is there, do they get that opportunity? Um, yeah, that's a good question. We do try to provide that opportunity for the kids to come and actually see because that's hugely important to actually have that physical contact and for the first time if you've seen a lion or a rhinoceros for the first time you've never seen it. It's a really quite monumental moment for those kids which is great and it's important. Um, and it's important to interject here one minute that going on safari you see the big five all the time could soon be the big three or two if we lose our rhinos and our lions. But the children in Africa don't often have the opportunity to enjoy aesthetically mm -hmm. the luxury of viewing wildlife. Usually their relationship with wildlife is in conflict, mm -hmm. either through agriculture or through predation. So it is important to have create this, what Leslie's doing, this positive mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly right. And what's really interesting in the most recent um, program that we ran, we did a comparison between kids, rural kids who are really out in the villages on the outskirts of the town, and then the, the town children. So a little bit better educated and a little bit more overlap um, with, with a better education system. And so the starting point for those children was that their their reporting of their value and empathy towards wildlife was much lower in the rural areas, even though they're the ones directly in, in re living directly with them in most conflict with them. But they're also the ones who are, they understand their relationship with wildlife is slightly removed because it's not for them. It's for the wealthy tourists, potentially. They don't have access to that wildlife the way, but people, other people come in and get access to it. But what's really fun and interesting through our program is that we had the same increase between the town kids and the rural kids in the reporting of their value, as well as their knowledge, particularly. Um, so although the, like the, the rural kids started, say, at a 40%, reporting 40% positive values towards wildlife, they went up to 60. Whereas the town kids had started at a higher level, say 40, it started at 60, but they went up to 80. So we've had the same impact even though it's a much more difficult situation from where they're starting. So, so you have to, <clears throat> another part of the solution clearly is, is, uh, is about addressing their concerns. And you point out that, that, um, that the reality is wildlife oftentimes just represent real conflict for, for people. And so part of the solution is figuring out how to um, to make the world uh, a, a place where people and wildlife can coexist, and these, uh, and we don't expect all everyone to love and and embrace um, large carnivores or other wildlife, but um, if they understand something about it and have attached a bit of value just because they have information, then you have the foundations established for actually uh, changing some of their some of their behaviors say in livestock husbandry or in agriculture to implement ways to um, to make coexistence more likely and so one of the solutions is to to address as Les Leslie mentioned earlier some of the some of the basic fundamental ways of managing livestock and crawling them and having a crawl that actually 
is resistant to predator attacks. And these are simple solutions. It sounds like he's saying corral, but it's a crawl. Yeah. K-R-A-A-L, which is a South African Afrikaans term. But it means the same thing. Same thing yeah. In East Africa, it would be a boma yeah. made of thorn bush or fence. There's mm -hmm. a lot of um, projects coming up, build a better boma. So right. part of, of what Tico is saying is that we have to uh, increase our knowledge and understanding of living with wildlife, be willing to coexist, and provide ways to do that. So stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to Our Wild World. We're with Tico McNutt and Leslie McNutt from the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust. You can find them online at bpctrust.org. And your donations are welcome. Or drop us a line at www.wildeyes.org and give us a visit. You can learn more about them or uh, contact us. So we've been talking about the interface between people and wildlife. Uh, Tico is very focused on wild dogs and understanding what they communicate to each other. Leslie is focused on communicating to people what wildlife means. And uh, we live in a world where talking to each other counts, where wildlife lives in a world where smelling each other counts more. So these boundaries sort of constantly are interacting. So one thing that's very interesting about Botswana, and elephants are so much on the headlines these days, is that Botswana is home to probably the largest elephant population in the entire continent or in West Africa in or Southwest, world. in the world. So there's what now, 250? 200 and some thousand, yeah. So that's a lot of elephants. So if you think in terms of the population of Kenya's elephants, which is about 35,000, which is also about how many elephants are being killed a year for the ivory uh, cartels, business, uh, international crime, whatever. We've talked a lot about that. So here you've got three countries, Namibia, Botswana, four countries, South Africa, and Angola, or in the trans-frontier trans parks, which yeah. makes this large of a population doable, so to speak, because they can move. So um, been talking lately, it's hard to have a conversation about conservation if you're not going to talk 
as we've been talking about, human population increase, decreasing space for wildlife. So elephants are mega fauna. They're the largest land mammal. They need a lot of space. What happens to Botswana, a landlocked country that faces drought, with this many elephants moving through? What are some of the impli implications, repercussions, consequences of having a huge elephant population? Well, if you try to contain elephants in an area, uh, ultimately they are water dependent and have a certain commute distance where from from water that uh, that will allow them to commute to and from the water and go to areas where they eat. And ultimately, a high concentration of elephants will eat consume trees and vegetation around sources of water and so that commute distance gets further and further away and during extreme drought conditions you can get to a point where they can't make the commute anymore and ultimately uh, what's going to control those large numbers of elephants is going to be drought and and the, and the lack of food within reach of water and so elephants will die unless, uh, you mentioned the Transfrontier Park, unless they can expand and decrease their total density, which is currently really focused around northern Botswana, um, and they can expand into the, the large and ambitious landscape proposed as the, the Kavango-Zambezi uh, Transfrontier Park, which include which is a five uh, five nation proposal. It's um, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Namibia, and the connectivity of all these large landscape scale um, potentially wildlife uh, uh, wildlife areas is hugely important for the the for the expansion of this very large elephant population that exists in northern Botswana. So I'm going to break in here. Are there a lot of, is there a lot of human population in these other countries? So it's still going to be a limiting factor of coexistence, education, knowledge, wanting to live with these animals that can be very, very destructive, mm -hmm. as, although we here in the West love them, we care about them. Animal rights is a huge thing that every animal has a right to be. Elephants are highly emotional, complex, but still what we're talking about here is when you give them a limited space, they're going to outgrow that space yep. pretty rapidly. And they're going to conflict with people. And, and <clears throat> that's, that's a whole other point. Uh, elephants and agriculture don't mix. Mm -hmm. That's where the conflict comes in. There's been a lot of projects, uh, chili pepper projects, mm -hmm. or um, what's happening in uh, Kenya, the, the collaring and... Uh, sort of like the lion pr projects when the elephants are nearby maybe people can go elsewhere but that requires a willingness so uh, it brings into a conflict between and I'm sorry to bring this up but we've been focused on this a little while in our wild world that animal rights and this right of every being especially of a highly complex emotional being what we're what we know and what we're learning about elephants and having to manage a population. When I was there a couple of years ago seeing you in Makati Kati, it was devastated. There wasn't a tree standing and there were a lot of elephants and it was drought. And when you see that kind of devastation and you see them going into the community lands, this creates a problem. So where do you think this, where do you think this is, the line is gonna have to get drawn in terms of if we're going to have to manage wildlife in terms of us and giving them space as opposed to letting it be, what do you think this, where do you think this is going to lead? Well, the only real solution is, is um, expanding habitat and redistributing the, the elephant population across a much broader landscape. Mm -hmm. Because they're continent-wide. Yeah. They're ecosystem architects. They're, and, they're landscape yeah, They're architects. modifying everything, and they will, if confined to an area, will eat themselves out of resources. And so then, it's either... And then there's mass die-offs. Which is what happened in Savo in the... In and the it's happened in Ganarazo in Zimbabwe, and it's, so, and it's probably happened historically in occasionally uh, with severe drought. But that's the reality, and it's, uh, and it's not a 
uh, it's not a, a desirable outcome uh, because it's really um, based on, on the constraints that we humans and human populations have imposed on this otherwise wide-ranging and broadly distributed large uh, herbivore. And so the only real management option is, is landscape and a landscape, large landscape scale approach like the Kaza, proposed Kazet. So give them space, conservation hold area. our numbers down, or one way or another, we're going to have to deal with yes. a control issue, yes. which is either... Well, then let's, let's see, look at some not, numbers. That, yeah, you can't, it's not even possible. <clears throat> the, the, the facts are that there's you know, 200 and some thousand elephants, and they're growing at a reproductive rate of 5%. And a year? A year. Yeah. And so, so do the numbers quickly, 200,000 elephants, 10,000 elephants a year added to call that so many elephants to, even just to <laughs> deal with the reproduction. So it's physically impossible, it's mechanically, it's financially, that the resources don't exist to be able to, if you were talking management in terms of culling, that, does, that, 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 that can't happen, it won't happen, they don't have the resources available to do that. So the state says the only option really is to have more habitat available, allow them to move where they need to move or would traditionally have moved in migrations, and to, so it's safe. You need to provide more safe space for them to go. And because the other side of the coin is killing them. Yes. And then, yeah. then that brings up the whole concept of an ivory trade. Right. Which, if we go down that road, is disaster. So yeah. um, we and need space. Space for giants. It, and habitat is critical. And, and this is a really interesting problem to have because, as you said, and as we know, elephants are dying constantly uh, elsewhere uh, because they're being killed by poachers who are just after the ivory. And for whatever reason, and there are a lot of reasons, uh, Botswana at this point doesn't have a huge elephant ivory poaching issue partly because it's, uh, it's, it's remote, relatively speaking. It's got a very active um, army, that the Botswana Defense Force, that is engaged in transborder issues of, of movement, in particular wildlife products. And, um, and that's not to say it won't become a problem in Botswana, and given the way that well, if the elephants disappear everywhere, all, then, everywhere then else, it I mean, it's moved into in Central Africa, yeah. so it's not that far away, but so we the, have to come up with solutions. Yeah, but at the moment, the problem with Botswana is uh, too many elephants, if they keep being contained or constrained uh, in international And Botswana borders. is not a hugely populated country. No, and that's fortunate so there, there for is the space, wildlife. There is space for them. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's, it's a perfect setup between, let's say, th these five countries, that nationals that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. It is the perfect place to make something like this work and be a um, example for elsewhere. But East Africa is a whole other story because there's millions of people. Right. So we have a, a little bit of time here left and we, we've started heading into solutions. And you were telling me about an interesting project in terms of a livestock insurance program. Tell us about that. Okay, um, yes, it's a, it's a program we started uh, four or five years ago trying to change the way, again, change the way that people have a relationship and their understanding of a relationship with wildlife. And it's historically been um, the understanding that it's wildlife belongs to the government. And it's not theirs, it's, and that therefore it's not necessarily their responsibility. And so in order to try and encourage people to take more responsibility, more have, have the sense of curatorship of the wildlife, they need to actually protect their livestock, which is what we're talking about. If there's ways that you personally can can do something to affect change in the larger continent by doing something yourself, so it's a it's a it's an initiative to to introduce an insurance policy. So by putting a little bit of premium to place, just like you'd buy car insurance or home insurance, you place a premium down and and insure your livestock herd. So rather against, than a compensation program, which is a money pit, <laughs> right. a never-ending... Exactly right. This, so this yeah. is a, an attempt to restructure compensation, which conceptually seems like it's going to address the economic concerns of the farmers and going to protect the wildlife, none of which ever happens. And there are a lot of reasons for that, one of which is um, failure to pay 
compensation and market value. Farmers feel like they're not being paid what their animals were worth. Um, so this uh, kind of levels the so, playing field. And there's this perception that, well, if government's going to pay me for my lost animals, they're clearly responsible for all the bad things that happened to me and my livestock. So all the wildlife. And so the idea of an insurance scheme is basically, let's have them empower them to insure themselves for a token fee at this point, but let's empower them to insure their, themselves against, uh, against losses uh, attributable to, to free-ranging carnivores, predators, lions, hyenas, wild dogs, uh, which, is, uh, which is identified by farmers that we work with as the single most important thing that, that, uh, that concerns them about the failure of compensation is that they need uh, they need to have full compensation for their market value. And they say that if, if we didn't stand to lose a bunch of money by having a cow or a calf killed by a lion, then we wouldn't be so antagonistic toward them. And importantly, it comes with responsibility. So you put your insurance put down, but you also need to change your, behavior, change your husbandry to have an appropriate BOMA, as you were talking about, and or have some sort of um, attendance to your livestock. So you get compensated so long as you've been doing something yourself as well to improve the safety and security of your lifestyle. So there's this fundamental shift in who's responsible at the end of the day. That's the most important right. thing about the insurance initiative. And the I idea wish we'd is get that, that in, in line here in terms of cattle on yeah. our public same, lands. Same, same relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, same relationships. And so uh, if, we can, if we can get, uh, and we've had this running now uh, in a pilot study for... Uh, for four years, and um, the people that have made claims, uh, first of all, there's fewer claims because we're because we've made this one fundamental shift in their husbandry, which is have a predator-proof boma, predator-proof. <laughs> Take, Take some responsibility. Take some responsibility and use it. And that's right. critical. Right, and um, and guess what? A lot of the predation goes away when you do that. Amazing how yeah. that works. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, and so we've had neighbors who are not insured um, get quite upset with when they've lost a couple cows, and and uh, where a neighbor who of theirs is insured and is not fussed by the whole arrangement. So um, it's slowly working. So are you finding it's, so it's it, working. it is working. It is picking up. Yeah. up. We've had lots more subscribers in the past year. So, we're so do you keep find neighbors, as you just said, who are insured and mm. yeah, get, they're selling it to the they're selling to it the neighbors. to their yeah. neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're out of time today. I would like to thank you so much. It was such a wonderful opportunity and a great surprise to see you here up in the Rocky Mountains. So now I'm going to come visit you back in yeah, Mountain. Well, we Fantastic. hope so. <laughs> yeah. you got you got it. It's a promise. So that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. I'd like to thank Tico and Leslie for being here. Thank, thank you for having for us. It's really nice You're to welcome. be here. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So we'll see you again next week. In the meantime, enjoy our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 